0: Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the
1: sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother! This is Eat and Drink with Ali Hassan and Marco Timpano, the podcast where back of house Sally and front of house Marco talk food and drink. Heads up! These two spent decades in restaurants, so some mature content and language is bound to come up. Get ready for Eat and Drink. Forks up.
2: Alright, welcome to Eat and Drink. I'm Ali Hassan and that, is Marco, the, that is Marco Timpano. And Marco, you have done something uh, wonderful for uh, for us and for our listeners today. You have brought in uh, not only a dear old friend of yours, but uh, I mean, do we say wine expert? I think he's very humble about words like expert, but I think, I mean, we can, we can throw that around pretty, uh, you know, it, it sounds honest, it sounds
0: true. Listen, I'll say this about our next guest or our guest today is that he's the best kind of wine expert you could hope for because he doesn't have that sort of snobby, snooty, condescending way when it comes to wine. If you have a question about wine, he's happy to answer and give his knowledge. And because, you know, we make cocktails and and we don't want our listeners to think we ignore wines, uh, I think it's great to have him in.
2: It's amazing. And it's good for the listeners to only have one snooty person on the show at a a time. So, you know, God forbid more snoot shows up. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. You know, I have a lot of questions about wine. If you want somebody who knows a little about wine and is really sort of a lay person, that's me, Joey Lay over here. So I I think uh, with people who do find wine to be a little bit uh, mysterious, I think I'll have some, uh, you know, I'll be representing that group of people. And, uh, and I think, Marco, you're more passionate about wine. You'll be representing that group of people. And uh, why, don't we, uh, why don't we bring them in?
0: All right. So this is a dear friend of mine and also the person I turn to when I have wine
1: questions. Loretto Grimaldi, welcome to Eat and Drink. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And uh, guys, I feel like, um, I feel like I'm, on, I'm on a trip to Disneyland here. I'm, uh, I'm your super fan. I've listened to every podcast. You know, it takes a pandemic to, uh, to kind of you know smack people around and get them to prioritize stuff. I've been wanting to listen to your show for years, and now that I had a shit ton of time on my hand, I've and on walks with my wife, who by the way is also a fan. We've listened to the whole damn thing, and uh, and I love it. I think you guys make a great team, and I'm so excited to be here.
2: I love it. You guys walk together, one headphone in your ear, one headphone in her ear, type of thing.
1: A bit of a logistical quagmire, buddy, in the beginning because, you know, she walks a little too far away and it's like, get, get back here. I can't hear. My signal's lost, but we've got this rhythm now. She doesn't like the thing in her left ear. It's got to be in her right ear, so I got to put it in my – it's a whole thing, but uh, it works out well. And we, we listen to you guys uh, at least twice a week.
2: That's awesome. But... It sounds like
1: a potato sack race, you know, when you tie one leg to the other. <laughs> uh, I'm visualizing it. It's pretty similar, but it's fun. Amazing. So, Loretto, we've, we've
0: asked you to give us your kind of top 10 wines people should try or yeah. ones you recommend.
1: Yeah. And so, look, I did a little bit of A, I mean, B, I like to be prepared. I, I I sort of spitballed in my mind and on a whiteboard um, kind of the 10 wines that, that I enjoy drinking and talking about and being social with. So drinking in mixed company. And then I sort of said, okay, I know a little bit about these wines. Let me go and just make sure I really kind of remember and understand the history and, and all that. So because for me wine, you know, it's great to drink, it's great tasting, whatnot, but it's really more for me. It's um, it's basically a, an opportunity to travel without leaving you know the restaurant or your house. I mean, wine, you know, takes you back to the the geopolitical history, you know, ancient chemistry, you name it. So for me, it's a it's a great what I'll call a storytelling uh mechanism and uh you know that's where i that's where i, I kind of approach it from
2: true At least i mention
1: that
2: sorry marco you even did the thing where you lift your finger to tell me that you want to say something and like a, a complete uh you know uh, just a just a woolly mammoth over here i just barreled through i was so excited to i was just lost in loretto's eyes i'm so sorry marco go ahead
0: I just wanted to say this, Ali. I want you to know that me and Loretto have been pissed drunk all across Europe. In Russia, we've been puking on trees and past park benches.
1: So, you know, as we've been puking on uh, police officers' shoes, remember, in Florida. You don't remember that one, but I do. Oh, trust me, that one I was trying to avoid saying. But uh,
0: for sure, for sure. So, you know, with all that heightened geopolitical things, there was a lot of, like, getting drunk and smashed with this That's hilarious.
2: So when Loretto talks about... um, you know, wine takes you back to, a, to a, a different time and it's a journey. What he's really talking about is uh, Puke Fest 2012 in Tallahassee and then uh, Puke Fest in Leningrad and this kind of stuff. Well, good to know. Yeah. Wherever, wherever it takes you, wherever your journey leads you, as long as you're enjoying the wine. Now, Loretto,
0: you have personally drank these wines, it's safe to say, right?
1: You have an intimate I, I... knowledge. Of I've wines. I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed them. I've in many cases I've collected them. Um, I've been taught about them by what I'll call wine mentors of mine that I've that I've had, and I've had the pleasure of kind of being around over the last 20 years. For me, it's been since the late 90s. You know, I had a couple of people in my life, uh, you know, partners at law firms I used to work at and uh, just uh, family friends who knew a lot more about wine than I did, who have kind of brought me along. And so my collection and these things are really hallmarks of the stuff I collect um
2: and can we actually yeah. mention your collection i mean uh, you know after yeah, sure. after you talk about puking on a, a police officer's yeah. shoes i think we should also we should that is a some level of street cred of course but we should also let people know what your uh, what your collection looks like and how avid you are
1: as long as we don't divulge my address because then yeah. uh, i don't want to run <laughs> no. the risk of a home invasion in this uh, pandemic time but yeah it's it's about six or seven hundred bottles and you know we try to buy you know a dozen wines every couple of months and i subscribe to a bunch of different you know newsletters and stuff like that and and we try to try you know on an annual basis three or four you know wines that you know we had no idea about so one of the wines we're going to talk about today which is a greek wine with a great backstory, is one that we read about in a newsletter and then we went to greece in the summer and we went to this winery and you know really immersed ourselves in the experience so yeah uh it's it's an empirical it's an empirical wine cellar that's kind of fraught with personal experience and a bunch of cool stories. I should also mention that uh, Loretto
0: is also Eat and Drink's lawyer. So if we run into any uh, legal <laughs> problems, <laughs> Ali, this is the guy who we'll be getting drunk with and uh, pursuing some legal w- Where's
1: the away. button where I can shut down the whole podcast? I don't see that here yet, Marco. Is that <laughs> yeah. the red dot over there? Is that the one? Yeah. You got it. You got it. All right. Okay. So should we just dive in is my question. Yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Um, and again, I just want to, from a historical point of view, guys, and and a lot of what I'll call kids of immigrants, um, where you know the home country, the old country, has you know wine as part of its culture, we'll, we'll empathize with this. But you know, I grew up around you know grandfather swishing grapes with their feet, the whole kind of cliched history. And uh, you know, I've seen you know my own experience with wine evolve from that. You know, that wine was. Interesting to see how it's made, but not very tasty to drink, as I'm sure most people will attest to. And so I, yeah, I, I kind of approached it from that point of view, um, you know, as a kid, and then as I got older, you know, the palate got a little more sophisticated. And you know, here we are with this with this top ten wine list. Um, I love so a foot wine. I love a yeah, foot wine. It's great. It gives it that musty <laughs> aroma. You know, it's all uh, it's all good,
2: Grandpa. Which um, uh, which foot did you use for this one? The left. I knew it. I knew it. I could taste because that's the one with the exactly. bunions. Yeah.
1: My my grandfather had a peg leg, so, you know, that was probably more productive on the pressing for sure with the wooden leg. (laughs) Uh, Look, guys, I split it out into three kind of buckets and I did it along the lines of, you know, what what an evening of wine, you know, would potentially involve. And so we start with, you know, a few pre-dinner drinks, you know, wines that you would enjoy with uh, appetizers or just, uh, you know, waiting at the bar for your table and then we talk about a few wines uh, you know for dinner time or lunchtime or Christ even for breakfast if you want and then uh, a few wines for kind of after dinner so as the evening kind of wears on and you know, you've had uh, some sparkling wine to start you've had a bold red for dinner and you're you know having some dessert or you're having a cigar and you want to you know drink something kind of sweet and potent and you know wine centric i've got a few suggestions here too all right let's dive so, in all right so the first one um and again, a lot of these, some of these are what I'll call uh, well-known grapes and wines for, you know, those who uh, are passionate and knowledgeable of wine, about wine. And some are, you know, wines that I don't think many people will will know. So I'm hoping as part of this exercise, we can, uh, you know, educate some folks on things that you might bump into at a wine store and then, you know, say, hey, I heard about that. And the first one is uh, called Franciacorta. And Franciacorta is a very tiny region in the Veneto part of Italy. Uh, it's 200 square kilometers. Loretto is Lombardia. Uh, yeah,
0: that's right. Corta is near Brescia. It's in Lombardia. That's right. Are you are you correcting me? <laughs> uh, listen. <laughs> this is wait. what it's like, Loretto. This is what it feels oh, like. shit. I know. Oh. And, are and you then, telling me that Lombardia and Veneto are two different regions? Well, I mean, if you want Prosecco, you go to Veneto.
1: But if you want Corta, you go. You go to Lombardia. Yeah, just because I was reading off the wrong line on my goddamn script here, guys. So look, I'm a little nervous. Give me a break. Cut me some slack. <laughs> Listen, okay? I usually I usually like needle uh, Ali, yeah. but I'm not going
0: to stop needling anybody on this podcast when they step no, in the no. wrong I, um, when they I, step on the wrong grade. You're a monster. You're so, a monster. So myself. it's
1: it's it's Lombardia, close to Brescia and Bergamo, and frankly, in the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic in Italy. Uh, as a fun fact for you. So a hundred or more different producers make this stuff. And some of, some of these producers, we went a few years ago uh, when we first discovered this wine to this tiny hole in the wall uh, winery that was basically hanging off the back of a barn. So you walk through, you know, cow shit and like horses giving birth and all this nonsense. <laughs> and you get into this back barn and this guy's making 10,000 bottles of this amazing uh, Franciacorta wine. And so it's a sparkling white it is uh, for my money uh, 10 times better than Prosecco it's got a bit more of a refined taste uh, it's a bit more exclusive because you know it's not you know Prosecco they make millions of bottles a year
0: Loretto guys, is it
1: safe yeah. to say okay yeah. so
0: Ali I'm sure you're familiar with Prosecco because you're a heathen right for sure but for sure and and it's available everywhere you know if you're a lady who lunches I'm sure and I am I'm sure you've had Prosecco. But franche Corta, which is name of the, which is name of which is the name of that area and the sparkling itself, is more like a French champagne. So uh, this is where I was going to
2: go, but I was like, I don't. Without a French 100%. person here, should I ask two Italians how we would uh, would would uh, you know? No, uh, no this rank. is important.
1: This is very important, Ellie, because and Mark was quite right. It's the way that the the this sparkling wine is made. It's made the way the monks made it when they invented champagne and Dom Perignon and all that so it's this two-stage process double fermentation and the second fermentation after it kind of ferments in vats ferments inside bottles and it, it there's a chemical process involving yeastification and then the yeast crystals come out and that's where you get this more kind of supple champagne-like taste and um, and the big difference between Prosecco frankly and Franciacorta is that whole process that, that, you know, a lot of the fermentation for Prosecco happens in these giant, you know, 10,000 liter vats. The fermentation process for Franciacorta, a bit more artisanal, a bit more kind of handheld, you know, uh, more workmanship, more kind of customary stuff.
0: Okay, Loretto, now we've mentioned that Franciacorta is a sparkling wine much like the uh champagne from france Mm -hmm. but in italy it's a casual it's as casual as drinking uh, prosecco like people just have it like i don't want to give it this sort of oh it's better than it's different it's much more delightful it's got characteristics that are different than prosecco Uh, what makes it distinct from prosecco would you say besides the the way that they make it like the monks you were talking about
1: there's a couple of things. I mean, there's two ways there's two different kinds of Franciacorta, Brut and satin. Brut is the drier, less sweet version and Satin is the sweeter version. So right there you get some more versatility in you know the offering if you're looking to buy and collect this kind of stuff. I like the fact that you know Prosecco is associated with you know traditional Italian drinks like uh, you know the the um, apparel spritz and other stuff. Yes. Franciacorta kind of stands on its own as a, as a bit of a unique offering that, that you can enjoy it on its own. It's got a bit more of a refined refined taste. And I think it has everything to do with that whole bottling exercise I was talking with Ali about around the second fermentation in the bottle. And, and I think it is a bit more exclusive, A, from a price point, point of view. Like outside of Italy, Franciacorta was unknown until, frankly, the last kind of five or, five or seven years. And, you know, in Toronto, where mm-hmm. we live restaurants you know pre-pandemic the last 12 or 18 months really started to carry a lot of it and frankly you know you can get a bottle of prosecco um you know for x dollars regardless of where you are in the world you're going to pay two to four x for a good bottle of french Akarta. like an aged french Akarta, you know in north america is going to cost you 100 bucks so you're you're much more into the champagne price point than you are uh, in the Prosecco kind of Asti uh, Spumanti kind of price point, at least from a North American standpoint. So that's one of the differences, you know.
0: Uh, now, Loretto, is it true this wine has only been made since 1961? I read something like that. So this is a relatively new wine. And so if you're looking for a new sparkling, this is definitely one to try.
1: That That is true. I think there is a bit more of a historical background to the wine Um but but really, it came into its own in the last kind of 50 years or so, Marco. So that's that's right. So it it is, you know, there's there's wine in Italy that's been around for thousands of years. This is definitely the newer one to the party.
2: And as I I, I told you, I was going to uh, occupy the role of layperson. So I think many people would associate sh- uh, champagne with you know the toasts, uh, special occasions, um, New Year's Eve type of thing. You are what we're talking about right now are pre dinner wines right so you're saying that even you know if, if you can manage the price point this is something as a aperitivo almost you open up your your appetite with 100
1: or when uh, when know. my kids get married at the toast i'm gonna uh, suggest that they drink you know some aged French corta that i've been saving for that occasionally and i think it's uh again it's it's italian champagne for all practical purposes it's got that exclusivity but again i've enjoyed it with pizza um and you know mm-hmm. And a veal sandwich. I mean, it's it is that kind of versatile <laughs> offering. You know, I love it.
2: Okay. And you had uh, you had two um, suggestions. I don't know if you still have those for pre-dinner wines.
1: Yeah. So the the other one is basically the the red version of uh, what I'll call a um, a wine that's not as well known outside of Italy. Uh, it is uh, more recently becoming popular. That's Lambrusco. And Lambrusco um, is from the region of Emilia Romagna. So think of uh, Parma Prosciutto, think of Bologna, mm-hmm. think of Ferrari and Lamborghini. It's that part of what I'll call just south of the Veneto region and top half of Italy. And this wine's got, you know, a two to 2,500 year history. It was, uh, you know, the grapes grow all over the place. It was uh, cultivated by the Etruscans and the Romans. So, you know, uh, very storied history. Um, you know, it can be dry, so not very sweet, and it can be quite sweet. And it's basically and it's more, a sparkling It's more
0: drink. effervescent, right, Loretto? It's yes. not so – the bubbles aren't harsh and in your face, Lore- uh, Ali, yeah. like I am. It's a little more subtle. Yeah. It's a little more effervescent. It's almost like uh, fizz in your mouth. Uh, I like I that said example. said fizz with an F. Fizz.
1: <laughs> yes. Let's keep it G-rated. It's early in the morning um it's a good you know what a good analogy is to the the effervescence and the, the fizz factor for these kind of drinks guys is when you drink mineral water i don't know what you find but for me when you drink perrier it's very uh it's high effervescence it's it's tough to swallow whereas you drink a, a, a mineral water that's you know like a san pellegrino or another one it's more effervescent like marco said so i think that is a good distinction for lambrusco so unlike champagne which is a bit you know more bubbly i'll say uh lambrusco is easier to drink because it's not as hard from a bubbly point of view that is a completely unprofessional uh unsophisticated characterization but yeah (laughs) less bubbles less bubbles and it's and it's red loretto right lambrusco i only know it as a red it's red it's different shades of red depending on the sugar content um but this is the highest volume produced uh wine in all of italy like back in 2017 they. They produce 13 or 14 million uh, liters of this stuff. So it is, you know, a very, the commoners wine in Italy for sure. And outside of, of Italy and Europe, and especially in North America, last five or seven years, again, this is a wine that's really on the uptake. So uh, this is
0: a fun, sociable oh, yeah. And, you know, in Italy, Ali, they drink this wine with anything. Like in Emilia Romagna, they're often drinking Lambrusco with popcorn. Like that's the sort of it's the thing that Mm -hmm. Italian teens get drunk on is a Lambrusco.
2: Okay, so tell me this and maybe, Marco, you just hit on that. But when I looked up Lambrusco, there was an article that came out about uh, it is uh, Lambrusco, the sadly misunderstood uh, Mm -hmm. Italian wine. What is the misunderstanding about this wine?
1: Uh, all for my two cents, and that is that uh, misunderstood in the sense that because it's so popular and produced in such high volume, Ali, people fail to really focus on the fundamentals of this wine and the structure and how great it is. Like, really, this is red. It's red Franciacorta for all intents and purposes. It's, it's got a lot of structure. It's, a, it's, it's refined and it's versatile. You can, again, I've enjoyed more than my fair share of bottles uh, with a plate of pasta or a slice of pizza.
0: I disagree. Uh, I don't think it's red it's red <laughs> franciacorta. I think Lambrusco is its own thing. I think you <laughs> you got subtle bubbles kind of like um if you took an Alka-Seltzer tablet and put it in wine, it's it's not franciacorta. For me franciacorta is uh, a That's wonderful right. structured champagne type style wine. This to me Lambrusco I've never been a huge fan other than getting together with friends Getting a cold bottle bottle of Lambrusco—that's another thing. Lambrusco, even though it's yeah, a red, is it served chilled, right? Um, and just having fun with it. Whereas yeah. uh, I don't know—I think Franciacorta for me is more of an occasion wine.
1: I think uh, you're right. If you uh, if you um, combine, frankly. Um What's that uh, powdered uh, drink that uh, you make the grape juice with, the the orange juice with? Basically a little powdered sugar, a little uh, Alka-Seltzer tablet, and uh, a little bit of alcohol, and you've got yourself uh, some Lambrusco. (laughs) Look, here's the main difference. A lot of it is the price point. (laughs) You're going to struggle to pay more than 50 bucks for a bottle of Lambrusco anywhere. Whereas you know, with some of the other wines we talked about, you can really get up into the the higher numbers. So this is the wine for the masses, like you say, Marco. People drink it from the top to the bottom of Italy and, and elsewhere in Europe. It's you can probably get a bottle of Lambrusco in Italy for five or six euros. You know?
2: And I just want to say what a what a joy it is to to for me to hear Marco um, kind of connecting with the common man. You know. <laughs> Normally on this show, anything that teenagers are are drinking, this guy's putting his nose in the air and going, oh, how pedestrian. But the fact that you still give this wine its uh, it's due, it's refreshing,
0: Marco. I will say this. This is a wonderful wine to have when you have people come over. Because yeah. good chance they've never experienced it. And it's a great talking point. It's something delightful Absolutely. in their mouths. Right, Loretto? It's like, it's a fun wine. It, it's yeah. not a wine that has any sort of um, pretense to it.
1: No, we pour it, you know, especially in the summertime, but all year long outside in the back, you know, by the pool, we'll pour it at a dinner gathering and and the first words out of most people's mouth are, "Wow, what is this? Tell me about it. Because like you say, not everybody's uh, experienced it. So again, back to my earlier point, how wine as a, as a conversation piece, as a, you know, precursor to a conversation, it's, uh, it's fun.
2: I've taken note of it. I'm going to, I'm going to buy a bottle. The very next time I'm in the store, I'm going to buy a bottle. So you'll find it, my
1: friend. You'll find it, yeah. uh, again, in, in local stores here, Ali, you'll find it uh, literally uh, there's a, I'll, I'll message you, uh, uh, one of the uh, producers, you'll find it for like literally 11 bucks. So oh, it's, yeah. it's approachable. Yep. Okay. All right. So moving along then. So to dinner drinks, I wanted to start with one that, um, again, very few people uh, I think will know about, and that is, uh, the Assyrtiko grape in Greece. So, Uh, In Santorini, which as people may know is, you know, a volcanic island where basically the island was created out of a series of volcanic eruptions, you've got this beautiful kind of rich uh, you know, pumice full and sulfur full soil, uh, lots of minerality. And so you ask yourself, how the hell can grapes grow in an environment like that? Because, you know, contrast. Not to with.
0: mention, Greeks are on that island. So good luck yeah. getting them to do just about anything, Ali.
1: So, who the hell knows who actually works the vineyards <laughs> and the wines, Marco, with all those bums hey, over there? That's where you're going. That's a terrible thing to say.
2: Um, the French and the Greek have both taken hits already, and it's really early in the episode. I don't know where this is going to go. you got to defend the
0: rest it, it, of the world. It's like the World Cup. You've yeah, got Italy on one side, and you're representing the rest of the world here. <laughs>
2: Maybe two Italians on a show is not a good idea, you know, just for future reference. It's a
0: recipe for disaster.
1: Our own Italian lawyer might have to close us
2: down because of things that he is oh, uh, he has said with our Italian I may host. have to interrupt myself
1: mid-sentence here. But uh, <laughs> hey, look, here are the cool things about uh, A Assyrtiko a is a very kind of mineral-rich wine because the, really the roots of the vine have to go down 10, 12 meters to really get to anything that helps them grow. And the other part about that's very cool about this wine is that it grows, you know, there's a lot of wind and a lot of heat on Santorini. So it's really not sustainable for what I'll call typical trellis type vines, you know, that kind of rise three or four feet off the ground and kind of go across. So what's happened is they've kind of trained these vines to kind of grow like little whirling dervishes in the ground. So they kind of spin around. And when they're in full bloom, they're kind of a foot off the ground they look like kind of balls of leaves, like a you know, literally a giant a kind of beach ball, half of a beach ball basket huh. sitting there, and uh, that prote- allows for a little bit of protection from the sun because the, the the grapes kind of exist closer to the ground under the leaves. I don't know how the hell they did that, but that's like we were in Santorini a couple of years ago, and I, I dragged the whole family to this vineyard that I had read about, like I said, and you're looking around, you're like, where are the grapevines? Well, and they're pointing to the ground. They look like potato <laughs> plants versus So I thought that was very cool, and uh, again, it's um, it's a it's a very kind of crisp, mineral-rich wine. So you're going to want to have it with uh, you know with um, some savory white fish. What does
0: that mean, Loretto? A mineral wine for people who are like listening and they're like, I people say it and I don't get it.
1: Yeah. And again, I don't want to get into, you know, you know, does it taste like, you know, burnt ash or like a cat's ass or whatever you want to, all this technical <laughs> jargon. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but I think min- like the, the best way to explain it is to contrast it with something that's not mineral like, so a sweeter wine, a fruity wine, the, the mineral wines got kind of higher tannin level more as, as, um, what's the word, acerbic. It's, you know, that, the kind of bitterness in your mouth when you eat a piece of raw fruit, like a you know a, a lemon or like an apple that's not ripe. That I describe kind
0: of... it like it feels as if you have no spit left in your mouth after you. Yeah, it. totally. For lack of a better way to describe this wine, well, I like that, uh, Ali. I yeah. like that.
1: <laughs> and again,
0: the.
2: Uh... I mean, I love uh, you know as you talk about the stories behind the wine. This is the, I honestly, and I, I'm being serious here. It is a hilarious. Uh, it's an interesting and hilarious story because you start with this is a wine that grows in a region that has no business really growing wine absolutely and yet stubbornly like the Greeks themselves these vines go deep 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 and find a way to grow and and thrive what a great analogy and then marco comes along and still uh still calls it uh, the flavor of uh, your mouth with no spit in it but but anyway I'm, i you this is a recommended wine by you right Lorenzo? you're saying there's
1: no question was- it is it's standing on its own it's be, it's becoming very um very much a followed wine outside of uh, greece and europe like in in the us in particular a lot of it is being exported there it's relatively low yield so it's not like Lambrusco where they're making millions of liters of this stuff so for a long time they just kept it in greece and now you know as with most other regions in the world, people are realizing that wine really is a global product. And uh, the cachet of having wine made in a place like Greece, which you wouldn't otherwise, like they, they had never been known for their wine. I think it's fair to say. This Although they were, they on the were
0: one of the original producers or makers of wine back yeah. in the day. They're not as well-known as other countries. Now, I have a question for you, Loretto. Here's sure. something that I've always subscribed to. If you're eating uh, the cuisine of a country, It's always great to order the wine from that country. So, is it fair to say that a certico will go with things like chicken, seafood, feta, things that we associate with Greek cuisine, or am I just talking out of my ass?
1: You know what? Please
2: let it be the latter. Please (laughs) let it be the latter. I actually
1: think he's right, and and if you think about Greek food, I mean, again, everybody's palate is different, but you know that tartness of the of the cheese of the feta goes really well with the kind of Again, the lack of spit in your mouth type feeling you get when you sure. drink a, a, a sip of a sirtico. So I think that's exactly the right way. Maybe it's just by accident, but I think Greek food, as it happens, would go really well with this kind of stuff.
2: Sure. A lot of lemon as well, yeah. right? A lot of uh, lemony flavor and stuff. So that's a exactly. good exactly. Uh, olives,
1: you know, the, those, the olives from Greece tend to be a ah, bit yeah. more, um, what I'll call, you know, harsher. Uh, more sure. flavorful, a bit sour, and so that matches really mm-hmm. well with the mineral, mineral, minerality of this kind of wine.
2: And you had mentioned low yield, Loretto. Uh, does that also translate into high cost in this case uh, for this wine? What's the price point of um, it? Again,
1: from a North American point of view, um, it's not it's not the cheapest white wine. I think uh, you know I've seen it kind of twenty five to forty five dollars. So you know we all know you can get uh, decent white wine for a lot less than that. So I would I would put this mm-hmm. in the premium category. And there are only about five or six producers that really make enough to, to, to justify the cost of getting an agent and exporting it outside of Greece. So it's not easy to find. I know in, in Ontario where we are, you know, there's, they, they bring it in, uh, two different types. So two producers, uh, you know, offer it here, I think in the U S maybe a few more, but harder to find, but worth the hunt, I think is the punchline. Okay. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> Of moving through, my, my all time favorite wine in the whole wide world is the next one I want to talk about, and it's called. Um, and again, I'm trying to not be an Italian wine snob here and focus on Italian wine, so I, I we had the Greek wine, which is good. I'm going to go back to Italy for a second. It's called the Amarone della Valpolicella, which is basically, um, you know. Royalty of Northern Italian wine. This is in the (laughs) Veneto. This is Um, in the
0: Veneto region. Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) And uh, yeah, I'll I'll never forget that now. And so, look, it's it's um, this is a
0: fantastic wine. I just gotta jump in here. I agree with my brother Loretto here. If it comes to a wine that you're like, I have a special occasion to go to. Uh, I'm going to someone's house. I don't know anything about wines. These people are really important to me. What wine do I pick off the fucking shelf? Do not stop in California. Do not wander in Germany. Go straight to Veneto. Look for Amarone. An Amarone will never disappoint. That's all I'm going to say, Ali, for the rest of the show. Punto. Basta. I will shut the fuck up. I just need the world to know Amarone is, for me, one of the best wines you can
1: get. I,
2: I, Good Lord, I, Berlusconi himself showed up with the passion he, over he there. One
1: hundred percent did.
2: Uh, there's an article uh, that I that I came across as again you you had said a lot you'd sent a number of these wines to us ahead of time. Uh, one of the articles about Amarone from 2013 i should say why is amarone wine so freaking expensive is the title of this article is that still the case
1: it, it is the case and there are two areas in the world around wine where pricing has just gone you know fucking elite. one is in mm. in napa valley with the california cabernet and, and you notice it's not on my list here because for me there's so much more kind of opportunity in the world to talk about wine uh napa valley great wines but kind of been there done that and they've gotten out of control like you cannot buy a bottle of california cab that's half decent for less than 100 us a bottle it's kind of the kind of the baseline number for a decent cab and the same is happening with amarone because two things have happened and this is a general point I'll make number 1 the market for wine has grown exponentially think of china 25 years ago chinese people didn't didn't consume wine a b you know the the income level of most people in 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 China and those parts of Asia was not such that you could buy wine. Now, globally, the prices of wines have gone through the roof for the simple reason that uh, you know supply and demand. Your basic economics 101 class, right? You got Chinese right. buyers buying futures of Bordeaux, first growth Bordeaux in France, to the point where prices have tripled in the last two decades. So has that happened? Has that impact uh, translated into Italy? 100% for the marque wines and Amarone is is one of them. I, I, the three most amazing Amarone producers for my money guys are uh, a guy named Tommaso Bussola, a guy named Giuseppe Quinterelli, and a fellow named Romano D'Alfarno.
0: Their Amarone
1: um, sells five or six years after it's bottled for 500 Canadian dollars a bottle. So it's a, it's a stupid price point. I think 15 years ago, that, that wine would have been you know $100, $150 a bottle. So supply and demand, a uh, little bit of greed from the producers because they've got this tiger by the tail. The world wants what they have, and that's kind of where we are.
0: Okay, so here's what I will say for people who are like, that's beyond my price point, and I don't know I'm going to own it. I don't want to venture into that into that fucking world. If you're at a restaurant and they have Amarone by the glass, I would say ask for a sample. See if you like it. They'll give you a taster and then order yourself a glass so you can appreciate the Amarone. But Ali, if you're like, listen, I want Amarone. Everything you're saying about Amarone, I love, I want, but it's still it's too outrageous. Then I would direct you down Ripasso Lane. Is that a fair way to go, Loretto, down Ripasso Lane?
1: Yeah, and so let's talk about that for a second, because Amarone is kind of one stop on a continuum of four different kinds of wine that come from this region made with these grapes. At the low end is Ripasso, as Marco said. That's, you know, a certain method of making the wine from the, effectively the same grapes. You can buy a good bottle of Ripasso in North America for 18 20 bucks. 20 Then you get Valpolicella, which is kind of the second one. That's a bit more expensive. Call it 30 to $50. Dollars. Then you get Amarone, and I didn't mean to suggest that there's no decent Amarone for less than 500, guys. You can no, no. get a really good bottle of Amarone for 50 bucks. You're right. And you can get wine-by-the-glass Amarone for 10 bucks. So right. you, you definitely want to try it. And then you move into you know Amarone that we're talking about, and then this wine called the Recioto della Valpolicella, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, which is a dessert wine, which is altogether even more um, exclusive than what we're talking about. So if you like this... And let me just talk about wh- what this wine tastes like for a second. Should we? It up.
0: should we, Ali? Should we let him go on, blather on about Amarone? Uh,
2: no, 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 absolutely. No, I, I think we should. And I, I also think it's great to talk about the, uh, you know, the, uh, what is that called? Uh, the Pecorino to the Parmigiano, you know, the yeah. the poor man's version of these wines. If they're not affordable to people, um, what can they get in that place? Because you have, both of you have sang the praises uh uh, in in such a huge way for this wine, so I think even if you're in, you know,
1: yeah. look,
2: if I'm a, if I'm a poor man's Russell Peters, I'm still doing pretty well career-wise. You know what I mean? So you can still yeah. I always think of that that even even a lower version of something uh, you know that you one day aspire to drink and 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 have and serve. That's not a bad thing at and all. So yeah, we should. And do. you're
1: gonna get those the tasting notes I'm about to describe in all the wines that I just described, just in very varying degrees of kind of power and force, if you will.
0: Now, Loretto, can you correct me if I'm wrong? Because I am i might be wrong on this, but I was always under the impression that a ripasso is basically a second pressing of the Amarone grapes. So after they make the Amarone, they're repressing those grapes to make ripasso. Is this yeah, just that's... a folklore that I've heard like Italians like to do? They like to tell you this fancy fucking story when it's not true? Or is that the case with the ripasso <laughs> versus the Amarone? It,
1: it is so true. It's in the name, buddy. So okay. ripasso, for those who uh, don't speak Italian, is, you know, passed over once again so the the pressing second press effectively exactly right so the first press will produce the valpolicella the Amarone, and this ricciotto dessert one i'm telling you about they've got all this stuff left over after the first press they press it again and out pops the ripasso so that's exactly right that's why uh, sorry Amarone.
0: Amarone, I want to mention, is a bolder, full-bodied wine. Uh, Think notes of like chestnut, dried fruit, stewed fruit, cherry. It's got that fruity boldness, Uh, not light fruits like um, peaches or whatever, but the heartier red berry fruits. It goes well. It stands up to heartier plates, right? Even even like meats and a a good burger and an Amarone is a thing of beauty.
1: Please. It's, it's amazing. And I think the best way to compare it. So think jam, strawberry jam, blackcurrant jam in an Amarone. And then in a good California Cabernet, also fruitiness. But the fruitiness in a Amarone is think of it as riper fruit. Like, you know, the, the cherries right off the vine when they're harvested kind of gives you a California Cab note those cherries are left in the hot sun for a while and mature and ripen and sweeten. That's what you get out of, out of an Amarone. So it's, it's a nice contrast. I, I love this wine. Um, whether it's a $30 bottle or, or, you know, whatever your, your palate and pocketbook can afford, it's something everybody needs to try. Great. Yeah.
2: All right, add that to my grocery list. This list is getting. Bigger. I'm telling you, I'm
1: telling you. Should we
0: dance so. on over to Ricciotto then, since we talked about uh, Amarone uh, Loretto? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So we'll go into the dessert wine for a second. So, again, same sort of, uh, you know, jamminess and fruitiness, but much, much sweeter. So, the Ricciotto, basically, what happens, it's a late harvest wine, not unlike ice wines and other wines, guys. So, you know, the, the grapes will kind of allow. A, a you know, the grapes will what they call raisinate, which means they'll turn into raisins before they press them. This gives this really kind of sweet, powerful, uh, dark, deep purple color for, uh, for a ricciotto. Um You can find it from kind of 25, 30 bucks all the way up to crazy numbers, depending on the winery and the producer. But just a really good um after dinner frankly i've poured it over ice cream and it's amazing it's it's not as syrupy as you know the amarena cherry syrup that you talked about on a prior podcast marco but it's yes. it gets pretty close and it's just absolutely delightful um really and just food. to uh, in case
2: it wasn't clear uh, the reason you danced over, as you said, Marco, to uh, Ricciotto is because they're both Amarone and Ricciotto are both uh, della Valpolicella. They're all made. Right? I don't know if that was quick.
1: good on you. you, you, you uh, you're paying attention, Ellie and I love that. This is all part of the, what I'll call the same grape continuum, the same part of Italy, Valpolicella region, same-ish mix of grapes, Corvina, Rondinella, Molinata, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, pretty good.
2: I once had a Valpolicella in a restaurant that tasted like balsamic vinegar. Hmm. Now, this is going back about 15 years. And I was so uninformed about wine that I was like, I don't know if I should return this or if this is the way this is supposed to taste. And I realized (laughs) years later, I was like, oh. No, that was uh, absolutely, that should have been returned. Instead, I stuck it through and I was like, I'm going to finish this glass. This is just a wine that I don't like. And for years after that, this tiny, tiny flavor of balsamic vinegar would still appear like a like a you know a, a PTSD on yeah, my tongue totally. every time I had it, I was like oh, I can still kind of sense that uh, balsamic vinegar. But anyway, we've come out of that. No, I,
1: we've come. I out like of your that. reference to PTSD because you know if when you drink enough wine in restaurants over the years, you're going to come to a point where you know enough to know that a bottle is corked. And so when you send that bottle back, if it's a bottle you really otherwise would have loved to have, the next time you order it or pull it out of your cellar, you're always going to have that mental note which you
2: just this fear again,
1: it, yeah, it, it yeah, yeah. and uh, try and forget
2: right. about uh, now at the risk of uh, to, 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 to uh, allay the fears of people to, who may think that this is uh, this is basically an Italian episode uh, for Italians made by Italians. You did put in, you did throw in a New Zealand wine uh, in, yeah, uh, in, yes, in one of the wines. So, so we're going to
1: go, we're going to kind of saunter off of the boot, if you will, and stay away from Italian wines just for a little bit. So we'll talk about some really wonderful whites to have with uh, fish and all kinds of other food for lunch or dinner. And I'll kind of kind of group them together into what I'll call Sauvignon, white Sauvignon or Sauvignon Blanc, Fumé Blanc, and Sancerre. Loretta, These what do you have wine, to say yeah. to
0: people who think lesser of white wines? Like there's this sort of mentality out there that uh, a red wine is a wine that a man has or a red wine is the is the wine that wine drinkers drink and white is for people who just don't know.
1: Uh, I think that that, with all due respect, um, kind of suggests a level of uh, simplification. Ignoranza. Yeah, and uh, you said ignorance, ignorance, so I'm saying <laughs> oversimplification of, of wine. You know, some of the best wines I've ever had uh, are whites. And, I, you know, they're harder to collect because they don't age as well, other than champagne and Franciacorta and those kind of wines that are designed for aging. So, you know what, Pell with aging, you buy a case. I bought a, a case of wine from Nova Scotia. Uh, I went hunting out there a couple of years ago, and um, they had an executive chef in there that brought this wine from Nova Scotia. You think to yourself, who the hell thought that anybody in Nova Scotia knew anything about wine? Beautiful, sweet, sparkling wine. It's called Nova. Yes, yes, yes. I know. So, uh, uh, guys, Nova, this wine it, is off the charts.
0: Yeah. Nova Scotia, I've said this before has fantastic wines. Nova is a beautiful wine. they do some great sparkling. I can't say enough good things about people think about British Columbia and Ontario when it comes to Canadian wines. I say push those provinces aside and head east my friends I
1: think i've uh,
2: I've actually had wine in the uh, Annapolis Valley or right by you know wines yeah. from the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia and I've been to a couple of vineyards a friend of mine uh, who's a CBC host who now lives in Nova Scotia. If people know CBC, they may know uh, Jeff Douglas's name. His wife works at a vineyard there. We got to sample a bunch of wine. So uh, Gasparo Vineyards, Planters Ridge Winery. There's really some great, great wineries there. So anyway. It is amazing. So
1: so so there you go. So there's an example of a white that uh, I buy a couple cases every summer. It comes in here in April. And we drink it. Yeah, the ladies like the white because it's fresher, it's fruitier. But I've got lots of friends who come over and say, you know, to hell with the red. What have you got in terms of sparkling wine, white wine, dry white wine? So to answer your question, Marco, yeah. the um, genderification of wine is uh, is a 1980s, 1990s conversation. Thank the you. other thing I'll say about uh, women Absolutely. in winemaking is that uh, they're really coming into their own as, uh, as uh, you know, kind of a, a group of people that are thinking about wine. So some of the biggest wineries in Italy, as an example. Uh, Antinori, which is a 700-year-old, 26th generation, same family, is now run by the three great, 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 great granddaughters of the founder. One's the president, one's the CEO, and the other one is kind of the business development person. They're they're taking over the helm of a lot of different wineries, and I think they have uh, so much to offer.
0: I mean, Gaia, Gaia, Gaia from the the label Gaia, I know it sounds weird, but her name, her first name is Gaia, her last name is Gaia, is, is doing remarkable things with that wine there. You've got Altare being run by one of the daughters of the family. I mean, you're right, like, Uh, wine is not a man's game. And there's arguments to be said, uh, even with sommeliers, some of the best sommeliers out there. Oh uh, yeah, they're uh, women. uh, Identify as female. So like, uh, I don't want people to think that wine is gender based. I don't like this bullshit about like, oh, whites, you don't know if you're ordering a white, you don't know if you like white. And I'd say this, if you are someone who considers them, someone who enjoys wine and you don't like white wines, then you got a fucking problem. That's all I got to say.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, somebody's cruising for a bruise, huh? I think you're
1: exactly right. Marco
2: will let you know. But it's so true, the machismo that has uh, that has uh, you know come with come along with so many of us as we grew up um putting white wine and gin another you know uh you you know incorrectly labeled in my opinion as a ladies drink oh you have gin on you know you have have gin oh when are you going to put your pants on that kind of stuff you're you're just losing out yourself these kind of attitudes it's it's a lose-lose situation for you it's and when you drop them a whole world
1: opens it's 100 percent. that's kind of um fodder from a bygone era, guys. I mean, uh, in this day and age, um, you know, wine is uh, something that brings people together. It doesn't matter who you are, what gender you identify with. It's just a great, uh, you know, thing to talk about uh, in groups and kind of share share stories. So if I go back to kind of where we were, these... Uh, I apologize. Non-
0: I took us away from there. We're in New Zealand. Go, Loretto. Sorry. No,
1: it's good. So it's these wines, White Sauvignon, Fumé Blanc, Sancerre, it's these are kind of what I'll call super fruity Young wines that you're going to want to drink with uh, fruit salad, with, uh, you know, any kind of fish, maybe not shellfish, but any kind of fish. And you'll find these these wines all over the world. You'll find them in New Zealand. So Cloudy Bay is the famous one, White Sauvignon. beautiful wine. You'll find them in uh, in California. So Robert Mondavi makes this beautiful wine called Fumé Blanc, which is amazing and very affordable. Uh, you'll find them in Italy. You'll find them in, uh, uh, in Australia. You'll find them everywhere. Very easy to grow this grape. It grows like a weed, um, relatively easy to maintain. And then when it comes off the vine, it's aged real quick, and you'll get this really, drink it really cold, really crisp, kind of grassy, uh, citrusy notes uh, in this wine. Just a lovely, lovely summertime wine. Um, and again, Not, it doesn't matter where you live, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to find this anywhere.
2: Loretto, for people who speak French, fumé means smoked. Does that have any connection to this or is that a completely different word I, here? I think
1: it's just really, Ellie branding in California. They, te- they just seem to have called the Sauvignon um, offering fumé blanc. But as I think about it, I think if you were to put up a New Zealand Sauvignon with, um, you know, a California Sauvignon, it's a bit of a smokier kind of color scheme. It's not as clear right through the way, like the white Sauvignon from New Zealand is almost like water. I mean, it's barely got a color tint to it. Mm. Really you can use bright, it like a magnifying yellow. glass. hundred percent, right? So this wine all over the world, different colors, but the, 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 the taste point is kind of think really crisp apples, you know, great with fruit, great with fish, just, you know, easy to drink, lovely wine. So-
2: what I, I really enjoyed that moment with Marco, right? Marco has his hat turned backwards and he leaned into the mic and he he made himself as macho as possible. You could you could use it like a magnifying glass. Like somebody's drunk cousin is here. You're like, man, who invited this guy?
1: What the fuck? That's crazy. This guy can't handle. <laughs> so <laughs> Okay, so you could use it like a magnifying glass. So Okay, so that's that's kind of the white, uh, the what I'll call the light lightish white uh, that I wanted to bring up. The next one is, is interesting, it's Pinot Noir. And so Pinot Noir um, is a lighter version. We talked a lot about Amarone, this sort of heavy, jammy, really rich kind of fruity wine. Pinot is kind of the lighter version. It's basically a lighter version of a red wine, lighter bodied, medium bodied. You can find it all over the world. My favorites are in California, the Russian River Valley. They're, they're cultivated in um, more of the coastal regions of California. So you get the impact of the sea air and the wind and the breeze. It really does have a significant impact on, you know, how the grapes are harvested and what they taste like with the salt in the air and whatnot. And, but they, uh, so but my, they shouldn't
0: yeah. be, just because they're a lighter wine, you shouldn't be looking at them as though they're a lesser wine because Pinot Noirs are beautiful and they've got a lot of characteristics,
1: right? Oh, they're, they're gorgeous wine. Yeah. They're, well, I think if you, if you were to do a taste test with a, an Amarone or a California Cab in one glass and a Pinot in the other glass. The Pinot is going to have a bit more spice to it and less sweetness to it. Uh, it could be a lighter colored or darker color. doesn't really matter. My favorite one is from uh, a company called Bell Glow, which is a Russian River Valley producer. Um, people that know a lot about California wines will know the name Camus. Uh The Wagner family is uh, one of the more successful California winemaking families. They've got tons of different brands. This Bell Glow wine. It's called uh, Clark and Telephone. And when you see it in the store, it's a beautiful bottle. It's got this wax finish on the top three inches of the wine bottle uh, with this little tag that you've got to pull. So you're literally taking the wax off the bottle. It kind of brings you back to antiquity. In the Roman times, they used to finish their bottles with wax to kind of preserve them. And just a beautiful experience. Now, the Um, Russian
0: Russian River Valley is in California in Sonoma, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's a more, more of a coastal area versus um, versus Napa, which is inland. And so it kind of affects Or Burgundy, our... right? Yeah, exactly. Because that's Pinot Noir
0: right. is generally the wine is it the wine of Burgundy? Now I can't even think anymore.
1: It's it's, I'm, I'm it's all, one I'm of all the
0: wine turned around.
1: <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> I said, you find this one here, you'll find it everywhere. You know, there's a lot of Italian Pinot, there's Australian Pinot Noir. Uh, just a really good versatile wine. And it's been it's one thing I learned in my research is that Germany apparently is the largest producer of Pinot Noir, I didn't think that Germans produced wine at all. And so I learned something as part of this exercise too.
2: Oh, my go-tos actually, you know, I was going to ask you this at at, at some point and I think this is the perfect segue. My go-tos for white are German wines, in fact, and have been for the last uh, Rieslings and the Gewurztraminer uh, or Gewurztraminer or Gewurztraminer, however it is pronounced. Yeah. Because of the amount of spicy food that i eat i'm always looking for something that'll stand up to it you know and sometimes a um a sauvignon blanc just gets a little bit it just sort of pales you know the the flavor that that would have been that would have been that i'd been able to detect it just kind of like <laughs> gets gets it gets kind of watery it winds up tasting like a beer to be quite honest how, i was gonna ask um, you that
1: how, how does it compare to kind of the fruitier whites and by the way when i said that I didn't think Germans made wines. I was focusing on red wines. I really didn't, other than this Pinot fact, I thought they were really just known for Rieslings and that name that you and I can never pronounce. What what would you compare that to when you, like to what I'll call a traditional white from somewhere else?
2: I honestly haven't found anything else. I know that some people Pinot Grigio they will they will say like this will stand up to spicier wines because of the level of um, acidity in it. There are some Pinot Grigios that have that have worked, but for my for my money for my palate, I always find that uh, in general. Obviously, I'm speaking. I'm sure there's some weak Rieslings out there, yeah. but Riesling and Gewurztraminer Gewürzt- uh, are usually a good go to. Under fifteen bucks, you're having something like something with some spice, some heat, Thai food, um, you know, um, even like kebabs and things like that. I think it does stand up pretty well.
1: Nice. Have you tried them from any regions outside of uh, Germany? Because I think there's uh, quite a few regions that uh, that are making Rieslings now. I think Niagara makes them too. Uh,
2: Oh yeah, actually, I have had some VQA Rieslings. That's right. Of course, I have. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 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 I have, and yeah, same kind of. Good feeling. It's a good, uh, it's the opposite of PTSD. You know, it's always like Riesling's in the house. All right,
1: Your your point's important though, because if you're, you know, depending on your culture and the foods that you like to eat, it's always a good idea, at least in my mind, to have one or two wines, whether they're grape varietals or producers or, you know, whatever that you can go to that, you know, kind of where to get the supply for wherever you live, you know, In Canada, just as an example, it's harder to get wine because there aren't that many private producers or sellers, whereas in the U.S. it's different. You know, just being able to have that stock around so that you can comfortably know, okay, I'm making this tonight. I've got a bottle of Riesling that's going to go with my, you know, spicy chicken or whatever it is you're making.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you this, Loretto, since we're in this area, um, because we're talking, uh, we're focusing on wine from a very heightened uh, perspective. but. How do you approach a wine list? Let's say you're in a restaurant, you have a wine list, and on that wine list, there's not a wine you recognize. Uh, I want I want our listeners who might be a little bit afraid of approaching wine lists or how to pick a wine uh, to know some insight from yourself. Because I've already said what, my two cents, um, and I'd like your perspective on this.
1: It's a great question, and, and it happens a lot. I mean, it'll depend on the restaurant you go to. You know, I've been to restaurants where the wine list is 150 pages. I've been as you guys will have two where it's, you know, 20 different bottles. So the first thing I like to do is, you know, depending on the kind of food that you're eating, what region, what kind of cuisine, and you mentioned this before, Marco, mm-hmm. try and find a wine that's from the same region that you're, that you're in, you know, enjoying the food from to see if there's a natural pairing there that makes sense. If I'm completely, you know, uh, mystified by what's there, that's when you have a conversation with the people that are serving you. And hopefully the, um, You know, the sommelier or the wine director, whoever it is. Or even the uh, waiter, for for, that matter. Yeah, absolutely the waiter. You know, a good waiter, you know, will know enough to be dangerous about the wine list uh, and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't instinctively just say, "Okay, let me get the let me get the wine person. Yeah. Um, And you know that from from uh, your travels, that it's important, you know, to kind of establish credibility with your customers by knowing a little bit.
0: So there's no shame in asking. That's something I want to bring to people's attention. You know wines, you know them well, and you will still ask the people in the restaurant. And how will you ask? Will you direct them to your flavor palette or the food you're about to order? How do you go in that direction if you're asking a question? Like, what are some questions a person who doesn't know wine could ask?
1: Um, So I think you start for the premise of, here's what I'm going to be having for dinner, unless you're going to make your dinner choice based on the wine selection. But I think given your scenario, it's the other way around. I know what I'm having. I think I talked to the, the folks about, look, this is what I'm having. This is what I think would go well with it. What are your thoughts? What do you guys recommend? And that's when you're going to find out whether they're just pushing a wine or they know what they're talking about. So if they're going to push a wine because they've been told it's got to it's got to move, they're going to be less, uh, you know, less objective and less uh, sincere about it. But I, again, it's it's about the conversation.
2: Um, it's yeah. an important point though you know a lot of the knowledge that Marco brings to this podcast is stuff that you know he's been at Boston Pizza and he <laughs> asks the server what goes well with this pierogi pizza and that's where a lot of his knowledge seems to come from that's so well, you know thank you for that. <laughs> all
1: right folks where, all right. where
2: you're eating and where you're drinking matters uh, yeah. also to some degree I would
0: say right, right? That's, that's, exactly uh,
1: right. that's exactly right exactly right uh and look, boy do we long for the the time to get back to a restaurant too i have to say but anyway
0: I got listen we've approached the end of this uh episode i know there's more wines on this list loretto i'm sorry we didn't tear through all of them
1: no uh, are you kidding
0: but, but i would love to drink in your wine cellar with ali and just show him exactly the right way to put your f- pinky finger up in the air when you're holding a glass of wine you, uh, I think Loretto. we're
1: de- we're definitely going to do that, and uh, COVID doesn't need to stand in our way. We can st- the cellar's big enough for everybody to be socially distanced. So come on over, guys. I really appreciate you having me on the show.
2: Oh, our pleasure, our pleasure. And just for your own benefit, uh, Loretto, um, we'll tell our listeners, um, you know, Loretto and his wine cellar are located in the southern uh, part of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Thank you. And so if you're looking for uh, yes,
0: but before <laughs> we go. I'm going to put oh my this God. on. What a treat. So, uh, what a I'll treat. explain to uh, Loretto what's going to happen.
2: Loretto, these are the famous uh, – these are the famous uh, – this is the famous – what do you call it? Eye patch? Sleep patch? I can't oh even remember Oh, my God. Are we actually doing this? Oh, my God. It's Christmas. we doing, Christmas doing a good. what's in Marco's mouth, <laughs> which means that Marco uh, at one point left this podcast – went up to see if his wife was around and asked her, is there something you can, in your own uncouth, barbaric way, Amanda, shove in my mouth for Loretto's pleasure. So this I is a, a special, uh, a little special segment dedicated especially to you, Loretto. I love
1: it.
0: What's in Marco's mouth? That's right. What's in Marco's mouth? It's nothing dirty. We'll guess it We'll mess it. Let's find out. What's in Okay, Ali uh, and Loretto, Amanda's going to show you, my, I'm blindfolded, the item that's going to go in my mouth. So take a okay. good look,
1: folks. Holy Christ. Okay. Nice. Loretto, okay. Loretto said, holy Christ. Okay, I don't great. like the way that <laughs> sounds.
0: And Ali saying, great. That's great. I love Shit. that. Oh, fuck. Okay. All right. So is this going in my mouth or is it going
1: in my <laughs> Man, hand? Man, I was going to say great no matter what it is.
0: <laughs> is it going in my mouth or my hand? In, go, going directly in my mouth. Okay. So um, I'm ready. This is going to go in my mouth, folks. All right.
2: Whoa! <laughs> She's a little more gentle today. I don't know if it's Loretto's presence or what.
0: Okay. It's a fibrous, c- crunchy thing that's finely shaved, some sort of vegetable. I think this thing's gone off. Whatever you put in my mouth, I think it's I think it's gone <laughs> off.
1: Was there an expiration date on the can? Is
0: there was there an expiration date on the can of this fucking thing? Because this is not okay. Give me another one. Oh, this is. It's yeah, like,
1: uh,
0: it's, it's not from a can. Oh, it's not from a can. Okay. Um. <laughs> oh, I don't like this thing. Okay, it's like it's almost like eating a, a thinly sliced salad. Right? <laughs> you it fell out. You didn't even get it in my mouth. Uh-oh.
2: <laughs> this is the beauty. He's in the middle of speaking, and she still goes, "Who cares if he's talking and shoves things in, in his mouth?" Yeah, Open I never considered myself particularly delicate, but uh, but I, apparently I'm much more delicate than his wife. Is this
0: um, water chestnuts? Is this what water chestnuts taste like before you? I'm gonna guess water chestnuts. Are you... Is this what water chestnuts taste yeah, like? Oh. take it out of your mouth. I can take it out of my mouth. I did. I, I just held it in my hand because you put such a big chunk in my mouth. Okay, she seems to has, have indicated that it is water chestnuts. I'm taking my. Is it water chestnuts? Oh, it is. It's water chestnuts, my friends.
1: Nice. Way to go. Uh, way oh, to God.
0: go. You nailed it, buddy. And you
1: said,
2: is this what water chestnuts tastes like? So you don't even know that product, but you
0: just know that I think I may have one day have had this? Well, you know, it's funny because I don't eat water chestnuts like they're fucking cherries is the problem, right? I, I, like, I, I eat them in things. They're finely sliced. They're amongst... Um, a salad or something, or they're in a dip. Sure, uh, so sure. eating them like that is a little unusual. It, it didn't have a taste, but it had like an underlying sort of flavor that 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 and that indicated um, rotten to me. It had a slight. <laughs> it went off um, taste. So Loretto, let, let me ask you does. this: What is a wine that pairs with water chestnuts? <laughs>
1: I uh I'm gonna plead the fifth on that. I have no idea. I haven't had a water chestnut uh since uh, it shows up in the vegetable dish of my Chinese food. So I'm gonna say Francia Corta. How about that?
0: Okay. Oh man.
2: <laughs> French corta with everything. <laughs> um also Marco, just uh you would not maybe be aware of this, but there was a lot of dripping of water chestnut out of your mouth. So you maybe wanna uh, you know, wipe up the, little, that uh, area up five. around your left. Yeah, exactly. Aisle <laughs> 5 being your crotch. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Loretto. This has been uh, such a pleasure. Thank you you for, uh, for enlightening, uh, so many of us, I'm sure with, with these great, great choices and, and giving us, um, a little bit of direction and, and also ambition, you know, things to work towards if things are expensive. Well, you know, save up, get it in your collection and, and have it on a, on a great day when it's time to celebrate.
1: Thanks for having me guys. It was a lot of fun and I look forward to seeing you, uh, up, uh, In Winnipeg, Manitoba, sometime soon. Yeah,
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. All right. That was uh, Loretto Grimaldi. Marco Timpano is uh, the co host. Uh, Ali Hassan is me, the other co host. Folks, until we eat and drink again.
1: We hope you got your fill of eat and drink with Ali Hassan and Marco Timpano. Follow them on Instagram and Twitter at podcast eat drink. Email them your cocktail and food suggestions to podcast eat drink at gmail.com until the next episode bottoms up